So how, how many of you were taught how to ride a bicycle by your dad? I'm just kind of curious. Anyone taught by your mom? Okay, we've got a few hands up. That's interesting. So I remember well teaching my kids uh, important life skills, like how to shoot a basketball. That's a really important one. Um, how to hit a baseball. Um, but probably one of the most important life skills that I taught my children was teaching them how to drive. Do you remember, remember your dad? How, how many of your dads taught you how to drive? How many moms taught you how to Yeah, my mom taught me how to drive, and then my dad picked up the pieces later. Um, my dad took over when he wanted to teach me how to drive a stick shift. And so mom taught me. She took me to big empty parking lots, and we drove and drove and drove. And then my dad wanted me to learn how to, how to drive a stick shift. And so if, if you grew up in the city of Long Beach... Where would be the absolute worst place to learn how to drive a stick shift? Oh, traffic circle is a piece of cake. Signal Hill, thank you. So I grew up, I grew up at the eastern side, right at the foot of Signal Hill. I've told you a couple of my Signal Hill stories. And so my dad thought it would be good for me to learn how to drive a stick shift on Signal Hill. That was a terrifying time of my life. I remember teaching my children how to drive. And I taught them the two most basic principles that I If you would write down on a piece of paper two most important, two basic skills that you would want to teach someone when they're learning how to drive. But here are my dad's top two, at least ones I remember, 71 minus 15, a long time ago. Um, the first thing he taught me is, the other guy is a doofus. The other guy will do something stupid. Don't be surprised. Expect it. Anticipate it. Watch for it. The second thing my father taught me that has literally saved my life dozens of times is never, ever trust a turn signal, whether it's blinking or not. Never believe a turn signal. And I cannot begin to tell you the number of times, either on a bicycle or in a car, where I've seen a car coming toward me at the intersection with his right blinker on, and I'm ready to make my right turn right in front of him, and I don't because my dad taught me not to do that, and he went right through the intersection. You ever have that happen to you? All the time. Um, I have a, I have a access to a special um, product that's now available at Amazon. It's blinker fluid, and so if, if you have, if you're one of those people that have issues with using turn signals, they just don't work very well. Um, see me. I'll give you that link to Amazon to, to get blinker fluid. So the most important life skill, believe it or not, more important than teaching kids how to drive and teaching kids how to ride bicycles. The most important life skill to teach our children and our grandchildren, any, grand, any grandparents running loose, you've got grandkids, it just keeps going, right? The most important life skill to teach our children and grandchildren is to trust the Lord, to have faith in God. God is looking for men and women. This isn't just about Father's Day and dads. God is looking for men and women who will model faith. A faith that 
believes in spite of obstacles, that trusts God in spite of the hurdles and obstacles and challenges of life. The most important life skill that we can teach our children is to trust the Lord, to have faith. So do you have a working definition of faith? If I were to ask you, give me your personal definition of faith. Do you got one that works for you? Now the dictionary says this, if Dave puts up my screen that has the definition from the dictionary. Um, the dictionary says complete trust or confidence in someone or something that is believed, especially with strong conviction. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. I got some issues with that, but that kind of gets us started. Dave read for us earlier from Hebrews 11, asked us how many people have memorized verse 1, and I was walking through the lobby when Dave was saying that, and two of our men out there asked me if I had it memorized, kind of nailed me to the wall. So I quoted it to them, I think, accurately. I have it memorized in three different translations. That's my problem. So Hebrews 11.1 says, read it with me. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And if you have a King James translation this morning, it says something very similar. Uh, and this is the one I memorized early. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Kind of similar, kind of similar. Um, the message, the paraphrase, the message says this. This faith is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. I kind of like that. But I really, really like the New Living Translation. This paraphrase says this. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. So my working definition of faith is... F A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I do what? Trust Him. God wants you and me to be people of faith. He wants us, especially as His children, to trust Him. And yet it just seems so often we struggle to do that. And so I want you to come this morning to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. And I want you to see, we're going we're gonna to peek in on the life of one of my Old Testament heroes. One of the dads, if you will, in the Old Testament. Caleb uh, was a different sort. And we're going we're gonna to discover that together this morning. And just to bring you up to speed to Numbers, chapter 13, we've got some history coming up to this moment in time, right? Children of Israel have been captive in Egypt for how many years? 400 years. God finally delivers them under Moses. They cross the Red Sea, decimating the Egyptian army. They come across the desert, and they're ready to enter the Promised Land. And God says to Moses in the opening verses of chapter 13 of Numbers, I want you to send spies into the land. And so Moses chose a leader from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so if you choose one leader from each of 12 tribes, you wind up with how many spies? 12. Good. You've got to do the math. And so these 12 spies are ready to go. And Caleb and Joshua are in their number. And so in verse 25 of Numbers chapter 13, hopefully I gave you plenty of time to get there, right? 
the spies are returning. They've been in the land. They've scoped it out. They're bringing back samples of the, the fruit that they found. If you, if you were told that uh, the guys were coming into church this morning with a cluster of grapes hanging from a pole, and the pole rests on the shoulders of two guys, can you imagine what the size of those grapes, that grape cluster would be? You're not going to find that size cluster at Stater Brothers, trust me. Not, not, not happening. And so they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days. They proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And then we have the first of several buts in this chapter. But. It's a great land. It's a good land. It flows with milk and honey. Here's the awesome produce. But. Or as my translation says, nevertheless. But. The people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. And the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites are living in the hill country. The Canaan, everyone's here but the termites. The Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of Jordan. <laughs> then Caleb quieted the people. Why did Caleb have to quiet the people? They were getting rowdy at that report. They were getting upset with that report. So Caleb quiets the people. And he said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. There's our second but. But the men who had gone up with him said, Whoa, time out. That's my paraphrase. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report and of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So where's this bad report going? Don't go. Stay away from this place, right? Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. What's that a symbol of? Mourning, sadness, grief, repentance. They tore their clothes. Oh, my. 
And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. Notice verse 8. If the Lord is pleased with us, then what? He will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. (laughs) So what have they done to be worthy of being stoned? So they haven't violated God's law. They haven't murdered anybody. What have they done? They have boldly declared faith, trust, and confidence in the Lord. We can do it. And the result is the people do what? Stone those guys. Yeah. Then, end of verse 10, Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. So, the tent of meeting was where Moses and God met and had conversation. The tent of meeting was where God would come down His Shekinah glory, and Moses would go in, and Moses and God would have conversation. The Scripture says that when Moses met God in the tent of meeting, that they spoke to each other face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I love that. And so God comes down... He's in the tent of meeting. And Moses goes out and meets him there. And in the next verses, if I were to read them, I'm going to try to summarize them real quick. So in the next verses, what God says to Moses is this. I'm done. I'm going to kill them all. And Moses, I'm going to raise up a new nation from you. You're going to be the father of a new nation. All the rest of them are toast. And Moses says to God, um, you know, everybody knows that you're the one who led us here. Um, all the nations have heard about what you did in Egypt. Um, your reputation is kind of on the line here, Lord. If you wipe us all out, how's it going to reflect on your name? And God says to Moses, okay. Instead of that, <laughs> do you think God changed his mind? I think this was a test for Moses as to how he would respond, what he would do. I mean, if if God came to you today and he said, I'm done with this United States of America thing. They've fallen far short of my expectations. I'm going to wipe them all out. But you, Dave Goodwin, you, I'm going to make a whole new America from. Wouldn't that appeal to your ego a little bit? That was a great plan. Me? Really? I'm all in. Instead, Moses takes God back to his character, who he is, his nature, and says, your reputation's on the line. And so God does not do that destruction of everybody plan, but there are consequences for disobedience. There are consequences for unbelief. And so what God now says is, okay, Moses, you want me to forgive him? I forgive him. But... Everybody over the age of 20 is going to die in the wilderness in the next 40 years. Not a single one of them is going to go into the land. Except two guys. Joshua and Caleb. 
the two spies that brought the good report. Everyone else is going to die in the wilderness. Their kids and grandkids will come into the promised land. But only two guys are going to go. And if you jump ahead in this conversation to chapter 14, verse 24, we understand something special about Caleb. Here's the word but that has a good meaning. In contrast to all this other stuff, but my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully. And he promises there to bring Caleb into the land, unlike the others that are going to die in the wilderness. And so the question that, that I ponder as I think about this passage is what do I learn here from Caleb? What does he model for me about faith? And on Father's Day, especially for dads and for the men here, but also the rest of us, right, ladies? What does it mean to have a different spirit? What does it mean to follow the Lord fully? The Hebrew idiom has the idea of being in step right behind someone. To fill in behind, right behind. And God says of Caleb, he's got a different spirit. He follows me fully. And I'm I'm challenged alone by that one simple thought. Am I following the Lord? Or am I following the Lord fully? Totally. Completely without exception. And so Caleb models for me some some thoughts about how do I model faith for my children? How do I model faith for my grandchildren? What does that look like in my life? And so the first thing that strikes me about Caleb is this, and you'll see it in your notes that I put in the bulletin. The man of faith, the person of faith, sees the Lord while others see what? The obstacles, the problems the hurdles, the difficulty. What are your eyes focused on? One of the lessons I try to teach new bike riders when I'm out riding my bike and there's someone new is one of the lessons I want them to understand is your bicycle always goes where you look. Always. And so if you're looking over here at something, what happens to your bike? Drifts this way. If there's a pothole in front of you and you look at it and you go, oh no, there's a pothole and you keep staring at it, where are you going to wind up? In the pothole. You always go the direction you look. And so a man of faith, a person of faith, has his eyes where? On the Lord. On the Lord. Always keep your eyes on the Lord. And so I I made this little graph that's up here in front of you. The difference between faith and unbelief Uh, Faith sees opportunities and possibilities. Believes God is strong enough, big enough, more powerful enough that there's, there's possibilities out here. Unbelief just sees obstacles and problems. Do you ever find yourself kind of overwhelmed with the stuff of life? Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by problems, difficulties, challenges, struggles? We all have those things in our life, right? Anybody who's never had any problems, any difficulties, any challenges? I mean, neither. 
Oftentimes we get overwhelmed by them, and we need to remember, keep our eyes on the Lord. Keep our eyes on the Lord. Um, the person of faith sees the, sees the size of God's power. Unbelief sees the size of the challenge. So these 40 guys, or I'm sorry, 12 spies for 40 days go into the land. These 12 spies all were gone the same number of days, 40 days. They all walked through the same land. They all saw the same cities, the same walls, the same people, the same produce. They saw all the same things. Ten of them said what? Oh, it's a scary place. They saw all of the obstacles, all the problems. Caleb and Joshua, they saw the size of God's power. God's bigger than this. Faith sees God's ability Unbelief sees my own inadequacy. You ever feel inadequate for some of the stuff of life? All the time? Do you ever feel you don't have the resources, the ability, the skills to deal with some of the stuff that God throws your way? You ever feel that way? I do. It's not about my inadequacy. It's about what? God is more than adequate. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that I ask or think, right? There you go. Um, faith takes the risk. It says we, that's me and God, we can do it. Faith takes the risk and unbelief plays it safe. I can't do it or it can't be done. And this is what we see pictured for us in this story in the life of Caleb. Here's a person of faith who says it's an awesome land. It's a wonderful opportunity. God is with us. If He's pleased with us, it's all ours for the taking. Let's go. And the other report says, no, it's too scary. The walls are big. The people are strong. We need to see the Lord while others see only obstacles. The second thing that strikes me in this passage is that a person of faith challenges others to have faith. He challenges others with the thought that we can do it. With the Lord's help, we are able. We can do it. Um, Have you ever heard this phrase? You and God make a majority. You and God make a majority. And that was Caleb's spirit. He was a different spirit. That was his spirit. And so, while these other guys are saying, we can't do it, it won't work, uh, there's these Anakim, these giants, these huge, huge guys. And they were kind of the Old Testament standard. You know, you thought Goliath was the standard for a big and gigantic size. But this, this, this group of people, these Anakim, were famous for size and strength. And the, the Latin translation of the Old Testament translates the word here, with a Latin word, gigantus. Gigantus. Is there a Spanish word like that? Gigantus? Giants. There's giants in the land. What are the odds? What are the odds that God's going to place giants in your life or in my life? I'm not talking about guys that are 10 feet tall. I'm talking about big challenges, big difficulties, big obstacles. What are the odds that God's going to place giants in front of you? Pretty good. If it hasn't happened yet, cheer up. 
You know, and I think of some of the giants that, that we face in the course of life. Um, things like cancer. Anybody here had any experience with cancer? A bunch of you have. That's a giant. Just the C word is scary, right? Any of you faced financial challenges, financial difficulties? Maybe an investment has gone south or... We have giants. Anybody have a prodigal child that's wandered away from the Lord? Off doing their own thing? Not following Jesus? That's a giant. You know, I, I, I think of uh, single moms like my daughter. You know, that's, that's multiple giants. You know, your husband walks out on you and deserts you. That's a giant. Leaves you to raise the kids on your own. That's a giant. Trying to financially meet those needs and challenges and work and raise your kids by yourself. That's a giant. And God calls us, and Caleb models this, that whatever I do, wherever I am, wherever I go, to challenge others with, with the fact that you and God make a majority. Is he trustworthy? Absolutely. Do we struggle to trust Him sometimes? Yes. So we need to keep our eyes on the Lord, not on the problems. And we need to see it as an opportunity to challenge others, including our kids and our grandkids, to be people of faith, to trust the Lord, to follow Him. One of my best friends was an elder in our church in Sacramento when I pastored there. Had the privilege of marrying Bob and his wife Kim and uh, watched them struggle with not being able to have children. They adopted two children and uh, two beautiful children that uh, they began raising. Uh, Kim was diagnosed with a rare, aggressive form of cancer. And um, I remember watching Bob through this time. Um, other struggles I don't have time to go into when Bob and I first met. But the struggle of adoption, not being able to have kids, the struggle of seeing his wife cancer, and, and Bob did everything. I, he did everything possible. Research online, trips to Mexico looking for special treatments. I mean, he pursued everything for Kim. And when she passed away, that was a huge, huge uh, crisis, a giant in Bob's life and, and in our church. And I, I, I just remember watching Bob demonstrating faith through all this time, modeling faith for his kids as he trusted God to take care of him and take care of his kids. When Kim passed away, Bob had risen in the ranks. He started off as a learning brand new salesman for one of the largest printing companies in the country and had grown very quickly. He was the national sales manager for this co company and spent many days away from home, traveling. He was, he was the one who was closing the big deals. He was the one who was meeting with the big clients. He was the one that was making big money. And when Kim passed away, he decided he couldn't keep that job. He had to quit. There's an act of faith. He quit a job where he was making some serious money. He decided he would quit his job start his own company so he could be home with his kids. 
Trusting God to honor that decision. And I remember walking with him through this time and thinking to myself, oh boy, <laughs> you know, what's the Lord going to do? Going to start his own business. You know, so he'd be home in the morning for his kids. He'd be home in the evening. Grandparents and some others helped with child care during the day until the kids were old enough to go to school. Um, it was a journey, a journey of faith. And, and, and Bob modeled that um, so well. Just an amazing, amazing journey. Kim had been gone a couple of years, and Bob told me one day, I'm praying that God will bring me a new wife. I said, well, that's a good plan. I like that. And he says, I'm asking the Lord to bring me a woman between the ages of 40 and 50 who's never been married and who loves children. And my friend gave me his prayer list was, oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, boy. And so we began praying that God would bring a wife to him between the ages of 40 and 50, never married, loved children. And uh, a long story, just short, um, we pray, I prayed with Bob and we trusted the Lord. And believe it or not, God introduced him to a woman who was, I think, 42 years old at the time, had never been married, and was an elementary school teacher. She loved kids. And Bob and Liz celebrated this last week uh, their 23rd anniversary. And their kids are both grown. Um, Their son has a son, so they have a grandson. But this this whole journey, I watched Bob modeling faith. Faith for his kids, faith for me, uh, faith for others around him. Caleb kept his eyes on the Lord, not on the obstacles, and he challenged others. We can do it. Me and God, we make a majority. God's on our side. God's on our side. We can do it. And then the third thing that uh, I see in Caleb is he is not dissuaded from his course because the majority holds a different view. You ever find yourself swayed by the majority opinion? Everybody's going this direction. Everybody believes this. And you just know that's not right. The majority said, the cities are too big. The walls are too high. The people in the land are too big. They're too strong. Yes, it's a Beautiful land, but. And to paraphrase what Caleb says, he says, yes, the walls are strong and big, but guess what? God is bigger and stronger. Yes, the people are big and strong, but guess what? God is bigger. God is stronger. You see, faith sees beyond the obstacles because it's looking at the Lord. It sees His strength, His abilities, His power. And it's so easy for us to get focused on the problem, the obstacle. Why do we do that? It just seems like it's human nature to 
embrace the negative rather than the positive. It seems like maybe, is it just human nature that makes us gravitate toward the focusing on the problems and the obstacles and the challenges instead of just simply trusting the Lord? Is that human nature? It kind of seems like that's the natural way things go. And so here's the majority. They hear, they hear the report of the, the ten spies. The majority of the spies is bad news. All the problems, all the obstacles. They hear all of that. And they also hear the good report. Where does the crowd go? The whole entire nation does what? They gravitate to the report of the ten spies. There's not any evidence that anyone said, Hey, time out. Listen to Caleb. It doesn't look that way. The whole nation embraces the negative report. You know, it's easy to do that uh, personally, to embrace the bad news rather than trusting God. It's easy to do that in a family when there's a time of, of challenge, an obstacle, a crisis. It's easy to embrace the bad news rather than trusting the Lord. Believe it or not, it happens in churches. It's easy to embrace the bad news. It's easy to grab on to the negative. It's easy to grab on to all the problems and all the obstacles instead of trusting the Lord. Do you ever notice that? It just seems that way. And I look at the life of Caleb, and I learn from Caleb... Me, you, Lord, we're a majority. That's always been true. That's always been true. I think of uh, the story of David and Goliath. You know, here's this little kid. He goes down into that valley. All the men are up there on the hills, all the soldiers with all their weapons and armament. And here's the kid down here in the valley with Goliath. God didn't need that army. He just needed one person that would trust Him. Or I think of the story of Gideon going into battle. And he starts out with all these warriors. And God says, nah, that's too many. And he whittles that entire army down to 300 guys. And these 300 guys go into combat. Combat, if you want to use that word. These 300 guys go into combat against thousands of troops. And they go into combat with what in their hands? torch, and a water pitcher. (laughs) God doesn't need armies. God doesn't need thousands of warriors. He just needs a few that will trust Him. And I think about that for us as a church going forward. He just needs us to trust Him, to rest in Him. Are you anxious about new pastor? When's that going to happen? We've had this Roy guy here for almost a year. You know? We just have to trust the Lord, walk with Him, depend on Him. He's going to take care of us, right? you got something going on in your life, some challenge, some burden, some obstacle, some issue, some great crisis, some giant. He just wants us to trust Him. Fourth thing I learned from Caleb as I look at this passage, he says in verse 7 of chapter 14, Oh, verse 8. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us. 
And so I learned from Caleb that modeling faith means that I realize, I recognize that faith pleases God and God blesses those who please Him. Faith pleases God and God blesses those who please Him. So if you're pleasing God, I learned from Caleb that God will do what? He'll bless. Hebrews 11.6, passage that Dave read earlier. Without faith, it's impossible to do what? Please God. He who comes to God must believe. How's the rest of that verse go? I drew a blank. He that comes to Him must believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. There it is. Senior moment. And so I learned from Caleb the the priority, the challenge, the importance of, of pleasing God. If my faith and trust and confidence in Him pleases Him, and it does, right? If my faith and trust in Him pleases Him, and it does... He will bless. And so, here's this guy, Caleb, and he models faith for me. And and the rest of the story is kind of fascinating, because if you were to flip forward several pages into the book of Joshua, I think about chapter 12. Um, Can't be chapter 12. Where is that? Where's Joshua? Well, it's in Joshua 14. Um, <laughs> You've got to admire this guy. He says in verse 10, Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke. Remember, everybody else was going to die in the wilderness except for Caleb and Joshua. The Lord has let me live just as he spoke those 45, he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness and now behold, I'm 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day of when Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now. For war and for going out and coming in. Do you know any armies that are signing up 85-year-olds? They're out, they're out recruiting in the nursing homes. You know, they're, they're looking for 85-year-old dudes that they, you know, that's not happening. And so here's Caleb, he's 85, and he says, I'm just as strong as I was 45 years ago for a war, for going out and coming in. And so Caleb isn't satisfied that by stepping across the Jordan River into the promised land, God has fulfilled his promise to Caleb that you're going to go into the land. But Caleb's not satisfied with that. He says to Joshua, you know that hill country up there? That's where I want to go. I want that land. And if I was Joshua, I would have said, "Uh, are you sure? Uh, You you do know that's where the giants live, right? The Anakim, all those guys. They live up there. Give me that mountain. That's Caleb. you got to love that. When I'm 85, I just hope I can sit up and eat, you know? Caleb says, give me that mountain. So if you want to model faith to your kids and others, 
Here's, here's the guy to look at. Here's the guy to, to kind of embrace as a model. God is looking for men and women like Caleb who can model a faith that stretches and believes in spite of overwhelming obstacles. Our kids need to see that kind of faith in us. Our grandkids need to see that kind of faith in us. So, here's some suggestions for becoming a person of faith. Number one, ask God to increase or expand or enlarge your faith. Ask God to give you greater faith. The disciples did. They said to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Do you remember the story when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration? The disciples were there with a man and his boy. The boy was demon-possessed and throwing himself on the ground. And Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, walks into this circle and inquires as to what's going on. And the father of this demon-possessed boy says, I came to your disciples and, and asked them to heal him, and they couldn't do it. And uh, he says to Jesus, but if, if, you, if you can, you can do it. And, and Jesus says to him, if I can? If I can? You know, if Jesus, says, if Jesus said that to you, how would you respond? <laughs> and the Father said these amazing words that I pray often. Lord, what? Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Does God want you to have greater faith? Yes. Is God able to increase your faith? Yes. Make that the prayer of your heart. Lord, increase my faith. Make it a habit, number two, make it a habit to discover and claim God's promises. This book is filled with God's promises. And there's, I I can't overstate the importance of finding God's promises and holding him to it, if you will. Holding him to it. You know, Moses did that when he said to God, wait a minute, time out, you can't destroy all these people. Your reputation's at stake, Lord. I think one of the areas where um, my wife and I have been challenged the most in trusting the Lord is with every time we've moved, there's been obstacles. I mean, just amazing obstacles. And I remember we bought our first home in Long Beach before our daughter was born in 76. And four years later, in 1980, we were moving to Sacramento to pastor the church there. And so one of the realtors in the church came and put his sign in the front yard, and he put us on the MLS listings and hosted open houses, and nobody cared. We had nobody show up. No other realtors brought anybody through our house. He never brought anybody through our house. We were just waiting, Lord. And I remember praying, Lord... You said you would provide. You said you would take care of us. You said that you wanted, I think, if I'm on track here, you told me to go to Sacramento, and I'm ready to go, but I need to sell this house. And the Lord and I had this conversation multiple times. Finally, one couple showed up with Alan, my realtor, and they bought the house. It only took one, right? House finally sold, and we were gone. We left uh, Sacramento to go to Modesto to pastor there. And uh, 
Oh, that was one of the weirdest transition times in our life. We lived in ten different places in three months. Um, we stayed with this family for a few days, that family for a few days. Uh, one, of the, one of the families in the church had, a, had an old double wide on their ranch, their almond orchard out in the outskirts of Modesto. And uh, they said we could come stay in this double wide. Oh, great! I don't know how old that double wide was. You could see through the cracks in the walls. It was, you know, summertime. It was hot. It was, it was awful. I could tell you stories about that, that double wide. And we prayed, Lord, is, is, is this what you provided for us? You said you'd take care of us. You said you'd provide for us. Um, I, I, it's not happening, Lord. And about the time we gave up and said, okay, um, maybe we're not supposed to buy a house. Maybe we're supposed to rent for a while. Long story short, uh, one of the gals in the church found a house for us. It was in foreclosure at the bank. Her husband went to the bank and said, if we can close in 10 days, will you lower the price? And they looked at him and laughed and said, sure, we closed in 10 days. Um, you know, the, the, the Lord isn't bothered by obstacles and problems, right? I mean, it's just amazing. And uh, eight years ago, the University of Laverne bought our house on the west side of town. And uh, we began looking for a place to live. And we were pretty committed to staying in Laverne. We really loved Laverne. And there was nothing available. We couldn't find a house. And this went on and on. And we're going to close. We still don't have a place to go. Uh, Lord, I'm having the same conversation I've had. Lord, you promised to provide. You promised to take care of us. Here we are. We're waiting on you. And uh, we waited. We waited. I made an offer on a place I didn't want, didn't like. Um, it was on Shepherd Way, which I thought was a cool street name for a pastor. Um, but I said, okay, Lord, this is what's available. I'm going to make a ridiculous offer. And if they take it, okay. If they don't, I'm good with that. And they refused my offer. And we kept looking. Two weeks later, they came back and told my realtor, will Roy still accept that offer? You know, we're ready to go. Nope, Roy's done. Um, so I gave the Lord a deadline. You ever give the Lord a deadline? So I told the Lord, okay, Lord, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to sort through what you're doing. I don't get it. Why is it so hard to find a house? July 15th, Lord, that's, that's my deadline. If I don't have a house by July 15th, we're, we're going to stop looking. We're going to go rent somewhere. July 13th, my realtor called me and said, I think I found a house. And I was just done. I said, oh, okay. He said, it's, uh, it's in escrow, but it's going to fall out. I said, what? How do you know it's going to fall out? It's going to fall out. Trust me. We, I want to show it to you. Okay. So we went and looked at this house. Two days later, on the 15th, it fell out of escrow. And we made an offer. And we were still in the house eight years later. God is in control. God is in charge. God keeps His promises, Right? We can trust Him. We can trust Him. Ask Him to increase your faith. Make it a habit to claim His promises. If you've never given a God a deadline, hey, it's a challenge, but it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Um, decide to face obstacles and problems and difficulties with the attitude, God and I can do it. God and I are a majority. So what are you facing today? What challenge you got in your life? What obstacle is hanging there? What, what is it that has the focus of your attention today? 
What is it that you're focused on? God wants you to shift a little bit and focus on what? On Him. God wants you to focus on Him. Turn your eyes upon the Lord. That's what He wants us to do. Oh, want to become more like Caleb? (laughs) Give me that mountain. That needs to be my prayer. (laughs) Every day, embrace and live the truth that you are not out there alone. Even when you're all by yourself, you're not alone. The Lord is there, and His call is for you and me to do what? Have faith. Trust Him. I love the story of the father who was sharing the biblical story of David and Goliath with his children. And uh, he was questioning his children to make sure they understood the story and kind of what was going on. And uh, his son said, Dad, I really feel sorry for Goliath. And his dad was kind of taken back. Why would you feel sorry for Goliath? He says, well, Dad, he was out there all by himself. So you have to reason backwards from that statement. So was David out there all by himself? Well, sort of, kind of, but no. No. Had God with him. Had the Lord with him. The songwriter says it this way. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. I love that song. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. Lord, make that our prayer this morning. Lord, increase our faith. Lord, make us more and more men and women whose lives are marked and characterized by trust and faith and confidence in You. Lord, we confess how often it is that we lose focus and become overwhelmed by the stuff of life. The obstacles, the challenges, the difficulties, the medical challenges, the financial challenges, the relationship issues. All of this stuff so quickly distracts us and draws us away from our trust, our faith, our confidence in You. Increase our faith. Give us the faith of Caleb at 85 to say, give me that mountain. Might we seek to do that personally, individually in each of our lives? Might we do that in each of our families? And might that be our spirit as a church family going forward? to trust You to do amazing and mighty and wonderful things. Lord, increase our faith. Make us just a little bit more like Caleb, that we might follow You fully, follow You completely, follow You totally. Help us to have that different spirit that characterized Caleb. Do that in each of our hearts, in each of our lives, is our prayer together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?
song with a great prayer. And the call out of that song is for each one of us to simply do what? Follow. Follow. That's what Caleb did. He not only followed, he followed fully, totally, completely. Let's make that the prayer of our hearts and our lives as we go out into a world that needs to know Jesus. Needs to know that there's a God they can trust. God they can rest in. A God who will be their provider, their strength, their help. People need to hear and know about the love of Jesus on Father's Day and every day, right? So have a great Father's Day and a great, a great, great week. God bless you.